The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. In the small community of photographers that I'm a part of here in Southern California, I really appreciate how different they all are from me and the work that I do. Along with street photographers, I know portrait, wedding, fashion, glamour, food, and every kind of photographer that you can imagine. I not only enjoy looking at their work, but I also like that we can on occasion sit down and talk intimately about where we are with our work and our careers. It means a lot to me to be able to be open and honest about the many challenges involved with leading a creative life. David Valera is one of those photographers in my community. You may have heard his name before as a previous guest, Ave Pildes, recommended him as a photographer you should check out at the end of his conversation with me. But even though I've known David for several years, I've never gotten around to having a proper sit-down with him. I knew that he has a career in animation and has worked on several DreamWorks films, including Kung Fu Panda, How to Train Your Dragon, and Shrek 2, and I knew that I really love his street photography. But there was a lot that I didn't know about a fellow photographer who I know loves Los Angeles as much as I do. This episode remedies that. All right. Well, David, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Baronex. It's, uh I'm humbled to be on your show. been a fan of your show for quite a few years, and uh, I, looked, I was looking forward to this interview. Oh, good. good. Some people are very nervous about talking with me. I'm I don't know totally why. nervous about this. I hate talking about myself. It's terrible. <laughs> well, I'll hold your hand. <laughs> I've known you for a while, and, and, and Abe sort of put uh, the bug in my ear about, oh, you should interview David. I go, yeah, I should interview David. So I'm, I'm glad we're finally making this happen. Yeah, he was a, a, an old buddy of mine. I, I grew up across the street from him. I was sort of the uh, the neighborhood rat around the neighborhood. And running around, we got into riding uh, cycles together, road biking together, uh, oh, really? before I even knew he was a photographer. So I uh, walked into his, his house and noticed a bunch of cameras lying around and a lot of uh, prints hanging on his wall so and that's when i realized he worked he was one of the professors at at otis is that how you got the the bug to use a camera or? i don't think so i, I think I, I think it did reinvigorate my interest back into photography i was still maybe 13 or 12 or 13 at the time but i think my mom kind of planted that seed in me uh a while ago she she sort of inherited uh, her uh camera from her her brother um, mm-hmm. when she moved from the Philippines here to the United States and it was a, a Leica 3F and so that was the camera that we just brought on vacations with us and I sort of took over those f- photography duties just because I like taking pictures and yeah. 
none of it was fantastic, but that was sort of the what started the photography bug in me. And she bought a, a Polaroid, and I loved using those Polaroid cameras uh, and expending as much uh, film as possible. And they were silly expensive, and they're really expensive now. And uh, but I think what was it? It was a little Kodak. Kodak Instamatic 44 that had those little square cubes, oh, the flash that. cubes. You're dating yourself, brother. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> I'm old. I'm, I'm of that generation. Um, but I just loved expending. You know, I just like flashing my sisters, like you know, uh. blinding them with the light. And then I like the look of how those cubes looked after they were expended. They were all bubbly and yeah, distorted. Yeah, would keep those. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were like in, in my my bag of marbles too, just because they looked super cool. But that's I'd, I'd say I'd say my mom kind of instilled the photography bug in me, and then uh, completely dropped out of it for a few years, as as we do, and mm-hmm. and then uh, got back into photography uh, for for my high school yearbook, and then dropped that again when I went to to college for a few years, and got into other interests like sports and girls, you know, as as people do. Yeah. And and it wasn't until I had my first my first child that uh that I got back into photography because I wanted to capture you know every waking moment of her. My first digital camera was that Apple Quick Take One Fifty. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah, and it was a as I think it was a what one megapixel or something silly if like that. that. If that, yeah. uh, and it wasn't fast enough to capture her, so uh, I went back to my old film cameras, my my Nikon FE two and decided this was kind of a pain to to photograph her in film and i actually ponied up the money to buy my first uh digital slr which was a canon 20d which was like silly expensive for its capabilities but i'd say that camera was the camera that really got me going back into into photography and getting my mind into it more and more yeah and Having the child is a, is the big inspiration for a lot of people to get reintroduced to photography. I think sometimes I feel like half of the people that I talk to tell me the same sort of story that they put it aside because of they were interested in high school or college, but it's the introduction of a new family member that all of a sudden they go, "Oh, let me pick this up," and then that blossoms into something more. So how did how did you move from initially wanting to photograph your family to doing something more? creative because your work which we'll talk about is is along creative along uh, another creative line but how did that sort of translate into wanting to do something more with the camera well you know as you as you get sort of tired of taking photos of your your own kids and your family um other people start looking at your work and go hey can you take photos of of my family and and so i started doing some client work and uh, doing some stills for child, mostly child photography and family photography. But I, I'd say when I got more into, you know, the genre of street photography, which I, I didn't really know what it was at the time. But uh, in 2007, my wife and I uh, went to, we're planning a trip to Istanbul. And uh, I picked up a book from Alex Webb, his Istanbul book. And oh, I said, Hey, we're going there. I want to take pictures just like this, and, uh, <laughs> which is really easy. <laughs> didn't happen. It was, uh, but it was what sort of informed me that there was a certain type of travel photography that wasn't was more human based. 
and it, it really gave you that the feel and of the and the culture of the place you're you're visiting. So you know, I took my 20D and a big long lens, and we headed out to um, a small town just west of uh, Turkey, a tiny town called Sirinji. And uh, I saw this this lady just um, crossing crossing the street on this cobblestone pathway. And the light was just was just setting behind her, so she was beautifully limb rimlit, and not knowing any of the 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 rules or or the laws surrounding f- photography in in Istanbul, the visions of being sent to a Turkish prison and Midnight Express, <laughs> and uh, I, I was really really nervous. The, my heart was pounding, and I lifted, but I I said I have to take this photograph. And I lifted up my camera, and I walked towards her a little bit, but but still fairly distant, and I took the shot. And I only took one shot, and I felt really embarrassed, but she didn't even see me. And I walked back across the street to where my wife was at the market. And I got back, when we got back home, I found that was the one photograph, you know, that I, that I wanted to take a look at because it really was my first attempt at street photography and and you know with the intention of shooting a stranger um out out in the wild out in the streets and i looked at the photo you know it's not very good um you know it's i think i shot it at like maybe 150 or 200 millimeter lens and uh so it's all sort of depth of fielded out you know the book was just there but i you know i got the shot but it wasn't. It, it's nothing that what I would consider a, a, a good street photograph by today's standards. You know, it's interesting about those moments because I think everybody has them. When you see something that you just know will make a good photograph, and that it comes against that wall of fear and anxiety, and at some point you, you just, it's amazing when you are inspired so much that you're willing to move past that 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 fear to to do it, even if it's not completely successful in terms of a photograph i think it's incredibly successful as as an artist to be able to have that experience and get to the point where you can repeat it because that fear and anxiety never goes away i've been doing this forever it's always there but it's the practice of being able to go okay i'm feeling this but i'm still going to do this and try to do it as as well as i can oh it's still there i mean i i it's one of the things that that i think photography has helped me is you know I have a lot of anxiety you know I have a high pretty high stress job my I have two teenage girls at home uh, and but I've always been been a kid with uh, high anxiety I I would have been classified as an ADD kid my mm-hmm. my parents would have jacked me up on Ridlin if there was such a thing <laughs> back back in back in my day um, I used to get in trouble a lot you know with the, with the law and. I was in the principal's office, and you know, when I grew up, uh, I had when it was time for me to go to high school. I had two choices. I, my 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 father laid down the law. He said, "You're either going to military school or you're going to an all boys Catholic school." So, you know, I think the the Gulf War was just about to start, and I was I was like, oh, "I don't want to go to war. I'd be of you mm. know uh, of age to to be sent overseas." Uh, so I don't know if I picked the lesser of the two eels, but uh, I ended up in, in all boys Catholic school. But the 
that, which, you know, talk about fear, <laughs> growing religion, um, I'm not going to go there, but the anxiety of, of photography and shooting a stranger, you're right. It's always there. It's always there for me. And sometimes it takes you know, a walk around the block to get back into the cadence of, you know, this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm, you know, I got to, and after the first few exposures, then I get my head into Mm -hmm. it. It becomes sort of like a game or for me. And I start getting my head into it and concentrating on, on the little rectangle and what I'm going to fit in that little rectangle. Yeah. I, I always appreciate the first couple of shots of the day. Because that greases the wheels for me. As soon as I've got that underneath my belt, regardless of whether or not it's a great photograph or not, it's just like I just go with the momentum that that builds to the point where it's just like it's not necessarily rote, but it's just that I'm I know what to do in order to get me to where I need to go, and that the feelings are sort of just suppressed or quieted for a while, or at least long enough for me to be able to make the photographs. It's kind of like it's kind of like your stretch exercises before you play your game. You yeah. know, you, you're 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 warming up. You have to have that warm up period. Uh, it's really hard for me to completely switch it on and just go hard all balls out into it instantaneously. You know, it does take me. Uh, you know, five or 10 minutes to, to definitely get, get used to what I'm doing, uh, get used to approaching strangers out in the, on the street, mm-hmm. like on da- in downtown LA where, where I do a lot of my photography, but yeah, it's, it is those first few frames that helps you, helps you get started. Mm-hmm. You grew up in primarily in Silver Lake? Yeah. My parents still live in the, uh, the house that I grew up in. Okay. It's certainly changed since when I was oh, there. Yeah. Yeah, but th- th- tell me about you know growing up in a in a city and being familiar w- with it, espe- especially when you eventually start photographing it. I know that you were big on bicycling, as you said before, around mm-hmm. around town, and I think it's sort of an interesting way of sort of exploring and discovering a city, regardless of whether or not you you have the intention of photographing it. But th- but but tell me what your relationship to Los Angeles was, sort of growing up, and how that might have influenced how you eventually sought to document it with a camera well silver lake uh, when i was growing up was definitely mid-city grit and grime it wasn't sort of the trendy coffee houses and boutiques as it is today uh it was basically a little suburb just in east hollywood and uh i would i would jump on my bike my, my parents worked both worked the swing shift so they would pick me up from school about two thirty, three o'clock and They'd go to work, I'd jump on my bike, and I'd just take off. And I would head down uh, to Sunset Boulevard on my bike uh, through a bunch of gangs and prostitutes in Hollywood and drug dealers. And I was always interested in all the club goers going into Bill Gazzari's at the time, oh, yeah. the Roxy, and it was all hair bands that were playing in these venues, but... I was always interested in seeing all the the ladies with gigantic hair and the guys with leather and um, just walking in there and I would just kind of hang out and, and, and watch them because I wasn't of age to actually walk into any of these venues. But it was sort of my my idea of entertainment. My, that was my TV. And also coming back and riding my bike through all the different neighborhoods, I just I just was fascinated by people and and 
by the urban landscape that Hollywood and Silver Lake had to offer. And so I, I always thought, oh, I, I, I would have, I wish I had a camera with me at the time because there were so many amazing scenes that I could have documented that I just remember. And I think that's part of why photography is interesting to me because it's those, those missed opportunities. At least I have the memory of them, but if I had a physical print of what I saw, it would have been pretty amazing. Yeah. I would have been pretty happy right now having a collection of, of those sort of experiences. But, but, you know, LA at the time was, you know, for me just, I didn't know any better. I just thought everybody grew up like this and had these sort of childhood experiences living in the city or the urban environment. And when I told my wife what I used to do as a kid, she, she was like, that's wild. That's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, at, when I was your age, my friends and I would go out in our backyard she grew up in Cleveland and they would play in the forest and, you know, to capture little tadpoles and things like that. And I always thought, thought that's, that's strange to me. I mean, it's so, so different than, than what my urban upbringing was. You mentioned that your mom was from the Philippines. Was your dad as well? Yes. Yes. My dad's from a province called Abra, which is up in the mountains. So how was, how was it for you to be the son of two immigrants? You know, and you're like the first generation. Yes, and yes. the whole sort of sort of being tied to do different worlds. Mm -hmm. The the one world being the world of the Filipino culture, and then being the American son, and all that stuff that that entails. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just talking to somebody about that because I, I have four older sisters, and we don't really know much about the Filipino culture. We, I mean, we've had my, my, my mother cooked Filipino food. So we always knew what the food was all about, but in terms of the culture, the dances, the language, they never spoke to us in Filipino. Uh, my mom came to the United States, uh, to go to college for nursing. Uh, she went to DePaul university and my dad immigrated here and he he went to Cal Poly Pomona to study agriculture and I think at the time you know it was it was the early 60s I guess they had a really difficult time assimilating to the American culture you know, it was like sort of this you know uh, the greaser culture for my dad he was always into cars and yeah. leather jackets and and Ray-Ban wayfarers but I think they made the concerted effort when they had children that when we were born here, we were Americans. We, they wanted to raise us as American children. So, which was good and bad. I, you know, I, I think it's it's good because I'm, uh, you know, I understand. I think I'm fully American. I and I, I speak the language, and uh, but I do miss out on some of the the cultural aspects. I think I did miss out on. Um, you know the, the the flavor of the language and sort of uh, what it means to be a Filipino. I only know what it means to be an American. My family in the East Coast, they're very very closely tied with the culture, and so when I go back there, I'm, I'm learning and more and more about it when I visit them. Uh, they all live in Connecticut and New Jersey and New York, so. I think I'm I'm slowly in my later on in life getting to know what it means to be a Filipino. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm the son of two immigrants, and 
that whole thing of straddling two worlds about within the confines of my family, my extended family that was out here, you know, speaking Spanish, eating certain foods, the whole dynamic of how men and women relate and all that stuff. And then on the other hand, being in basically an American school, an American neighborhood, and how I felt I fit in and didn't fit in and how I related to other people. So, so, so much informed who I became. And sometimes I think that that is part and parcel of why I see things and respond to them in the way that I do. So I was just wondering whether or not you feel any semblance of that. Oh, totally. It's very similar. Um, The high school I ended up going uh, is, is a, a, up in the foothills of uh, Southern California in a very uh, affluent neighborhood. And I felt a little different uh, than everybody else. When I look back at my experience in in high school, uh, all my friends were, were Caucasian, a lot of, they were blonde. They, but I didn't see myself as different until certain, unless I was in certain situations. And then I felt a little like, Oh, you know what? I am different than you guys. There weren't very many, um, Asians that went to this high school. It's a very small, small high school, uh, and there weren't weren't very. It wasn't a very diverse sort of high school, and there were situations. I always played sports, so I always felt included into um, you know the, the friendships and the team and the community. But it, I think it wasn't until later on in high school when you know we we would have these high school dances and our sister school was there. I was. And and the girls, I think, saw me, I was different, which was, it worked in my case sometimes, and it didn't. But I felt that I wasn't, I fit, but I didn't fit mm-hmm. in a way, which is really hard to describe. But my experiences in high school were, were mostly positive, but I did have those instances where I did feel a little different than everybody else. Yeah. Because when I think about, especially the genre of street photography, historically, it's been a field that's sort of dominated by white male of a certain class level. And I think that that informs a lot of the imagery, um, including how people of color are are captured and rendered in a lot of photographs and it's not that it's i'm conscious of that every time that i go and shoot but i think i'm sensitive to it Mm -hmm. and i'm wondering how it is for you as a street photographer particularly when you're shooting in areas where there is a range of diversity Mm -hmm. in terms of 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 people of race and ethnicity how do you consider your photographs when it comes to that. I know I don't I know you're not necessarily going out with the intentionality mm-hmm. in, in the intention of doing something with that particular idea in mind, but I wonder how how you think of your own photographs in comparison to the works of others because of that. Does that wow. make sense? Yeah, totally. Um like you said, I, when I go out to shoot street photography, I I have an open eye and sort of an open heart to everything. I just take things as it comes. I don't uh, expect anything from it. Sometimes I come home with absolutely no good photographs. Uh, Other times I may have one or two that I'd want to post online, but I I don't know. I I may be more sensitive to um, people of color, uh, and how they, how I want to represent them on the street in my photographs. But I don't know if that's just done 
subconsciously, but it's certainly not an intention. I don't. I never want to take a photograph with the intention of showing people in a in a negative light. I may have some humor going on in my photographs, but I don't. I don't go out to. I want. I want to show more of a positive thing about humanity and about the human condition. It's there's so much negativity in this world, but in terms of how I want to represent ethnicity. That's, that's a good question. I I never really thought of that, but historically, when you look back at all the great street photographers, it is, it is sort of represented by a strong Caucasian sort of socioeconomic uh, group of people. And I think a lot of the collectives out there, they, people of color aren't fully represented or there's an even distribution of ethnicity within uh, certain collectives and groups. I think that's something that will hopefully change because I think people of different backgrounds have a lot more interesting things to say than what we've constantly been bombarded with for the last few decades. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of diverse individuals, um, that I see online that have amazing, um, an amazing eye and amazing vision because of their background and their take on society and their biases. It's one of the things that I really like about living in the age that we do because we have access to photographers from Asia, from South America, you know, from Africa. And it's like you get to see what other street photographers are doing. And it's it's really fascinating to see how how similarly and how differently that they they see it that it's that it's not just this sort of homogenic tradition that we have to sort of get inspired from. What was the catalyst that really allowed you to feel like you had made a, a leap in terms of what you were trying to do with street photography? Because a lot of people go out, they shoot in the street, they don't necessarily know what they're doing, you know, they're sort of hit and miss. But did you have a moment where you felt like I'm getting this. And what was it? And, and what was the inspiration to, to, to inspire oh, that? I, you know, I've, for years and years, I just took really bad photographs. And, <laughs> uh, you know, when you look back at Lightroom's great when you, when you scroll back into the history oh, of yeah. the early photographs that you've, you've taken. I don't think it was until I, I met the street photography community here uh, in Los Angeles, which is, you know, it's, it's interesting in itself, but. I was able to show some of my photographs to others that work that I respected and get their feedback on some of my work. And I start realizing uh, maybe I need to head down this direction and close off this other sort of uh, route that I was headed down. And just having them and their feedback and their critiques on my own work I think helped me get to another level that I was comfortable to show more of my work uh, and to show certain, like a certain side of me. Um, and that's when I started feeling like, okay, this is, this is, I'm, I'm starting to achieve some of the work that I've always wanted to um, based on other photographers that I followed earlier in life. And I think it was not until uh, Todd Hatakiyama started the uh, uh, a studio down in downtown Los Angeles, a simple studio where we all sort of congregated and met, mm. and we we really built uh, a pretty good community 
in, in downtown Los Angeles or Los Angeles, a lot of people were coming from different parts of town and getting to meet sort of your peers and getting to see what their interpretation and their take on sort of the art form and what they see on the same streets at the yeah. same time with the same lighting. You know, it was really interesting to see sort of their take and their style uh, as we're standing on the same street corner. But it was, you know, they are, when I, was, when I say the street photography community in Los Angeles is interesting, L.A. is just a weird place to begin with, <laughs> just because it's, you know, we're all used to sitting in our cars and we go from our, our garage in our house and we drive down the freeways or the highway to our parking garage at work. And there is no sort of interaction with people in general, not like what you do, would do in, say, San Francisco, uh, having to commute on the BART or, or the Muni or even in, you know, New York, for instance, on the subways, we're in LA, I think we're so insular. Mm -hmm. And I think what lacks in our community in the street photography community is that there's, there's nothing that really kind of binds us. We could, we actually have to search out to be part of a community and be active and make an effort to meet up one or two or three different people in the city where in most cities you just kind of like, Hey, I'm only like a 10 minute train ride away. Or you just bump into them on or the you street. Bump them into, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is happening more and more, I have to say, in, in downtown LA. There's there's a lot more street photographers nowadays than there were when I, I first started. We're like roaches sure. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean you trip on them every every block. They're on every street corner. Um which is good. You know, it's fine. Uh you know, it's it's just it's just uh, much more prevalent and more popular in terms of uh, it's so easily accessible nowadays, and yeah. everyone's doing it. It seems, but it, you know, in general, it's all it's 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 good, and and I'm finding more and more interesting people that way. Yeah, LA is just uh, it's a hard place to you you have to make the concerted effort to to find people with the same interest and to build a bond and friendship with. Well, tell me about your work at. Uh here at DreamWorks, what what is it that you uh, that you do? I'm the head of final layout. Uh, what we do is we block the character and cameras, uh, almost like previs or moving storyboards, and we we we're, we're seen as the cinematographers slash cameramen slash set dressers of the pipeline. We kind of set down the blueprint before it enters the more expensive production departments like animation, facial animation, lighting effects. So we we kind of inform the rest of production where we're staging our shots, where we're shooting. So the modelers aren't putting so much work in an area that the audience or nobody's is ever going to see. Um, so it's just, it's a cost saving technique for the production, but it's also, I think, one of the more creative uh, aspects of of uh, animation because we're very involved with the story process with the directors and you know at the end of the day we're trying to to we're trying to um, give the viewers what the director's intention is we're trying to hit the direct all the story points that he wants to hit in in a very aesthetically pleasing way mm -hmm. and you serve as as the role of a cinematographer even though we're talking about 
animation. Mm-hmm. Um, how has cinematography informed your street photography and vice versa? Oh, it's, that's really interesting because um, you know, they're looking at other um, examples. Uh, Roger Deakins is actually a cinematographer that we have consulting on, on some of our films. He was very active in uh, How to Train Your Dragon. And I was reading an interview with him um, about him when he was filming Sicario. And he used Alex Webb as a strong influence and a strong example of how he shot that, that film uh, in terms of shadows and the colors being used. But he said something to the effect of he couldn't shoot the entire film that way because it would just be overwhelming to the audience mm-hmm. of how complex the layers are in, yeah. in, in those photographs. And I kind of see it the same way with the work that I do here influences the work that I do on my own, my own personal work uh, in, in street photography. A lot of it is a little bit too clean, I think, for street photography. I really work on the composition and I hate Dutch angles, so I always kind of clean that up. But I'm, I'm learning to let things go and be a little bit more organic in my work now. And vice versa, it, it, street photography has influenced the work that I do here in at DreamWorks. I was working on a film called Larrikins that uh, just recently got canceled, unfortunately. But the way I actually got that job was because our, our um, department head liked my street photography. And there was a lot of street photography sort of influences that he wanted to infuse in the storytelling and, and sort of the compositions that we were, we were shooting uh, in certain story points of, of the movie. So it, they kind of worked back and forth between my personal work and the work I do professionally. You know, I think it's interesting because you were showing me some of the examples of your work and the work of others. And the idea that in, in, when you're creating an animation, you have to be in complete ownership of every little bit of frame that passes through uh, a person's, passes in front of a person's eyes. And the idea that you're, you're, very conscious of not just the subject but the background and the foreground element and the relationship between all of those all of those elements and, and making a conscious decision to emphasize one thing or de-emphasize another sometimes to make when you can get away with making a more complex image and where you have to go for starkness and simplicity so I'm wondering how being sort of immersed in that all the time for your work here sort of influences how you approach something when you're out on the street. It's such an incredible contrast. Um, here we could be in endless meetings about the simplest things that the audience would assume, like depth of field, like how are we going to isolate our subjects or do we want to isolate our subjects? What do we want the depth of field to look like? Do we want character to it? Do we want it to look like it's shot within this uh, anamorphic lens. Um, we go through endless, endless meetings to make the smallest decisions. And then when I'm out on the street, it's just, how do I feel? Do I want, do I want to shoot this at an F 11 or an F eight or F 13 or 16? It's a very simple organic thing. So I think what helps me out on the street, I could just, I feel like I have full control over what I'm doing from the very, very beginning to the very end. What I do professionally, it's done. It's a collaborative sort of agreement that we have with multiple department heads trying to figure out and help the director 
execute his vision. And at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's what he wants and, and you're, you're sort of executing what he wants. Whereas in street photography, it's just me. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the client and I'm the vendor at the end of the day uh, when I'm doing street photography. And I think that's why I enjoy it so much because it's such a, a contrast from my day-to-day life. You know, not only are, am I trying to uh, execute the director's vision, but I'm also trying to appease my producer. Like the director says, I want to do this. And then I have to go back to the producer and say well it's going to take me x amount of man weeks to achieve this look so there's a lot of back and forth trying to appease both parties of course you know the producer wants to do it as quickly as possible as cheap as possible but the director wants to put as much as he can to tell his story so there's a huge tug of war that i'm sort of caught in the middle of but when i'm out on the street it's just this huge release of I don't really have to please anybody but myself. Yeah. And it's awesome. I mean, and that's, it's very meditative. It's, it's very relaxing to me, but I, because I always have this need to, to fill a frame, to compose a shot, you know, I can't drive my car without looking out the, the window and go, Oh, how would I, how would I stick a rectangle around that? Or, Oh, that lighting is so amazing. I'm going to stop the car and pull my camera out of my bag and, and which I do more often now than I used to, which is, which seems like such an effort because I'm always late to everything in <laughs> LA because uh, you can never know what the traffic's going to be like. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge contrast um, between my own personal work doing street and, and doing animation. Everything is planned out in excruciating detail and we could be in production uh, from two to four years, depending on the complexity of the film. Wow, that's a big commitment. Yeah, it is. Well, street photography is much less. It is, <laughs> it is, it is. Which is one of the nice things about it. I mean, you can go out for 15 minutes and, you know, and feel, like, satisfied. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, like, hours and hours. Right. I find that I spend much less time in the street now than I used to. I mean, I used to be, you know, like, four hours out there. And about two hours, hour and a half, I'm like, I'm good. Yeah, you yeah. know, just because I, I think I've refined the way that I've seen to the point that I know what I want or I know what I want when I see it, mm-hmm. rather than just sort of constantly throwing the line out, seeing what I yeah. can catch. Yeah. Is that your experience? I definitely feel the same way. I shoot a lot less uh, in terms of hours walked and and frames expended in my camera because you you do develop your eye, you do develop exactly what you want to filter out. Uh, in your own head and it's it's just I, I you know the days of me going hey i'm gonna spend four hours walking downtown la i don't do that anymore mm-hmm. my life is so busy with two teenage girls really the only time i kind of shoot street photography mostly now is take them shopping they want to go shopping they're in the mall or they're in uh, some store off la brea and i said i say i'm gonna walk around the block for you know, for about 15 minutes, I'll meet you back here. Mm-hmm. And I go and I, you know, take a few snaps and I come back and meet them and they make me pay for their purchases. So <laughs> that's basically how, that's how most of my photography is done. Um, but I, I do make some time, some, some weekends where I say, um, you know what, I'm going to, I need to clear my head. I need to walk for at least a couple hours. I'll be back. And I just go downtown and, 
you know, do the same circle that most everybody here does, you know, walk down Broadway, maybe make my way up to the financial district or maybe head south to Santee Alley uh, if I want something a little bit more diverse and ethnic. But um, by the end of the day, it's just I think you're right. I, I shoot. I probably shoot less, but I think I'm more I'm more effective. I think yeah. I get more more keepers than I did when I just said, Hey, I'm walking all day long and I'm going to shoot like a hundred, 200 frames. I think you, you just get become more efficient at it just cause you know, with experience what you want and what you want to achieve. We were talking earlier about photo books. We've, which we both have a very strong affinity for as much as I like looking at pictures online, there nothing matches being able to sit in a comfortable chair and just turning a page slowly in, involving books. And I know that you and Dana and I think Rinzi sometimes get together and just like share books. Yeah, we, and, we, we but, trade books. Yeah, let's, let's talk about first um, the importance of books to you and also about, you know, getting together with those two and, and exchanging books and what that provides you. Yeah, well, you know, first off, photography books are incredibly expensive. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, trading books for a month or two with with uh, your friends is a great way to expand your 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 library. Um, and you get to see a lot more uh, for a lot less. But uh, I think black and white photography. Yes, you could look at well, you could look at most photography uh, images online for sure. But when it comes to color photography, I like to see what the original intention from the photographer, what he, what he liked in those greens and yellows and blues and reds. I wanted, you know, when you look at things online, whether you're on Firefox or Chrome or Safari, all the color profiles are, they could be night and day. They could be mm-hmm. so off. So I think photo books informs you of what the original intention the photographer meant. This is exactly how I wanted to process the film, or this is what I wanted the greens to look like if they were very actively um, a part of producing the book and the prints. But there's something also about having something tangible in your hand. You know, I love those Sunday uh, afternoon, early afternoons that... I just sit in my couch or my comfy chair under a window and flip through somebody's monogram. You know, it's just, it's just, there's something pleasing and interesting and um, comfortable about having a, a great photography book on your lap and flipping through the images. It's very inspiring and, and it's very motivating to see those images uh, in a tangible way rather than sitting in front of your computer and clicking through next next photo i spend all, probably five times longer on an image with a book than i yeah. do online online i think we're just conditioned to you know f- almost flip through images as, as quick as we can click that button but where you have something heavy like a book spine and a paper to turn there's a little bit more effort involved and you almost want to spend a little bit more time with it are there certain books that are your go-to books that you return to over and over again? Oh, you know, I love Alex Webb's Suffering Light. You know, even though my, none of my work looks like his, but I'm just inspired by 
the way he sees how complex his images are. I went to uh, Aperture Gallery in New York last year to see uh, was the very final weeks of his La Calle uh, exhibition and to actually see those images in large format printed out. I mean, it makes the book it look insignificant in comparison because the colors on his prints were just mind-blowing. But um, I'd say Suffering Light is is a great, great photo book that I always go back and, and, and look at. Uh, Trent Parks for Black and White, Minutes to Midnight, and The Black Rose are, are truly inspiring. Um, just reading the passages of sort of his thought process and why he made certain images kind of really resonates with me uh, and, and inspires me. Those those two guys, I, I'd say, are are amazing. If you haven't picked up any of their books, they, they, those are those are what really kind of get my juices going when it comes to photography. Yeah, one of the one of my secrets I learned while I was at school was uh, up in Berkeley was Moe's Bookstore, and I think a good number of my initial collection of, of photo books came from that store because they have uh, extensive used. Mm-hmm. And I would go in there every week and see what came in, <laughs> and they and they still sell stuff online. Uh, but for me, it's just like I'll take it used because spending a hundred dollars or more on a book is that's a commitment. Oh it's yeah, so it's much silly. It, yeah. it, 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 it's it is a commitment. Sometimes it's worth it. Like I spent yeah. some money on uh, Saul Leiter's collection. Uh, his 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 color work is just and how abstract and the way he sees things through. Uh, you know what I what I love about his work. It's always it's done in in New York with those. Um, he likes to shoot through windows with frost or mist or condensation, and it makes things look so abstract. You know, we rarely get any sort of like weather or condensation right. on our windows here, unless it you know it rains, which it it kind of did this year. But I think I'm attracted to things that I know I can't capture here in LA. You know, you you just look at. I'm I'm amazed by by Saul's work. There's he had a gallery showing at the Rose Gallery. I think it was maybe three years ago. It was a few months right before he passed away, mm-hmm. and to see his prints on the wall and at that size was mind blowing as well. It was truly amazing, and I just wished I I bought one of those pieces because <laughs> they they seemed so out of. These are so affordable in comparison to what they are worth nowadays, yeah. for sure. But uh, I love, I love going to that gallery. She has, she represents some of the best photographers in the business. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, I actually have two. Um, Ruben Ratting, I'm actually a fan of his work. He's a New York photographer, um, does a lot of um, photographs of you know, of people in Brooklyn and in, in, in New York. Uh, he knows how to fill the frame. He's starting to use flash a little bit uh, for some of his sort of interior shots. Uh, I think his work's really interesting. And I met w- up with him last year for the first time, and our personalities are kind of similar. You mm-hmm. know, we ride on the same sort of wavelength, and we have very strong opinions about 
uh, similar opinions about certain things and certain individuals and certain photography. Uh, and then I, I just recently uh, had a workshop last weekend uh, up in San Francisco, and I took a workshop with, uh, I think, it was, uh, forgive me if I mispronounce her name, but I think it's Yolanda um, Mazur, and her work is totally different than anything that I would ever shoot. She's very, um, very graphic. I think she has a graphic arts background and she looks at, uh, colors and lines and a very, very strong compositions and graphic compositions. I enjoy her work tremendously. Awesome. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks about it. Next. It was fun. Thanks. Thanks again for joining me, and thanks to David for joining us on The Candid Frame. To find out more about David's work, visit davidvalera.com. Thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations that we offer here at TCF. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candor frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and the candor frame website. Or if you just want to make a one time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on the candor frame website or the show notes. Thanks to Robert Williams for his recent contribution. Thank you so much. It means a lot. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we present here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at Ibarionex. And this is Ibarionex, and this is The Candid Frame.